This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the battle over pokies reform in New South Wales sees a club's boss sacked after linking the state premier's religion with his policy on gambling. Also, one of the key figures in the referendum no campaign claims an enshrined voice to parliament would breed resentment in the bush. Former Deputy PM John Anderson is my guest. And chasing the green dollar, we put a proposal to legalise cannabis and raise billions of dollars in revenue under the microscope. By legalising cannabis, you stop about 70,000 people a year getting caught in the criminal justice system. There are people who are very passionate on both sides, but I think it needs to be a very clear-eyed, evidence-based debate. Thanks for your company. The battle over pokies reform in New South Wales has spilled over with the head of clubs New South Wales sacked after making insulting comments about the Premier's faith. Josh Landis told nine newspapers that Dominic Perrottet's position on gambling reform is a result of his conservative Catholic gut. Gambling reform and the proposed cashless gaming card is not only shaping up to be a major issue in the upcoming New South Wales election, but as some experts point out, it's also a watershed moment for the country, particularly since it's the first time politicians have taken the powerful gambling lobby group head-on. Catherine Gregory reports. From pokies to religion, the debate on gambling reform in New South Wales has taken on an unusual and groundbreaking turn. Those comments aren't an attack on me. They're an attack on every single person of faith. Premier Dominic Perrottet today hitting back at comments made by club's New South Wales head, Josh Landis, to nine newspapers this week, in which he accused Mr Perrottet of not understanding poker machine reform and acting on his, quote, conservative Catholic gut when it comes to his cashless gaming card proposal. The comments have caused such political furor that less than 24 hours later, the powerful gambling lobby group head has been sacked. The club's New South Wales board met today to discuss the CEO's comments and ended his employment immediately, a move politicians like independent MP Alex Greenwich had been calling for all day. I have had my own policy disputes with the Premier on social reforms over the years and at no point have I attacked the Premier for his faith. It's important that we have these robust debates respectfully. And Mr Landis has proven that he cannot do that and it is time for him to go. Even Mr Perrottet's political rival, Labor opposition leader Chris Minns, called Mr Landis out. I don't think there's any place for that kind of sectarian and discriminatory language in New South Wales politics. It's no surprise Clubs New South Wales is against the Premier's gambling reform, the centrepiece being a cashless gaming card which would put limits on how much punters could spend at the pokies. The idea being it would help curb problem gambling and money laundering. As Tim Costello, a gambling reform advocate, points out, Clubs New South Wales is scared the reform will undermine its billions of dollars in profits. The 62% of pokies revenue comes from people who have a problem, 42% who are addicted, another 20% who are developing a habit. Secondly, the New South Wales Crime Commission showed billions of dollars of dirty money going through. Clubs New South Wales did announce a new gaming code of practice this week to take effect from mid-2023, where it would bar punters who showed signs of problem gambling 
gambling, such as people who seek credit, borrow money or leave children alone while playing the pokies. But Mr Costello says it's weak. While the cashless gaming card, which requires legitimate bank accounts and identification, exposes criminal behaviour and also ensures accountability for gamblers so they can't overspend. It's the closest thing we have to a magic bullet. Tasmania, with bipartisan political support, is already introducing the cashless card. Mr Costello thinks other states will follow as well. This is an extraordinary watershed moment. Uh, It is extraordinary that it's happening in New South Wales, which has uh, 35% of all the world's pokies in pubs and clubs. Uh, So accessible, New South Wales is the world's belly of the beast when it comes to gambling losses. Stephen Mayne is a gambling reform campaigner. He's not surprised Josh Landis made the sectarian comment about Mr Perrottet. Oh, look, I think they're panicking. They're used to being totally dominant in New South Wales and sending their fixes interstate to uh, snuff out gambling reform movements in Tasmania or South Australia. So to have an insurgency in their home state uh, with the Premier leading it and quite a deal of the media on side is is something they've never experienced before. So, yeah, the community clearly is fed up with their power. Stephen Main expects the cashless card itself to make only a small dent in gambling losses. But it's more what the reform represents, which is a political rejection of the gambling body. The ending of the memorandum of understanding where each side of politics promises to make no change before the election. So just the reduction in the political power of the pokies lobby I think is a massive step forward. That's gambling reform advocate Stephen Main ending that report by Catherine Gregory. Alice Springs business people behind a $1.5 billion, $1.5 billion class action against the NT government over the ongoing crime wave have hit back at accusations their motivations are racist and widening divisions in the town. The allegations were raised by some hecklers at a meeting held in the town last night to get the legal action started. The business people and some Indigenous leaders say allegations of racism are just another distraction from how to fix intractable crime and poverty problems. Jane Barden reports. It was a social media call-out by motorcycle repair shop owner Garth Thompson that brought 3,000 people to a meeting in Alice Springs last night to consider launching a $1.5 billion class action against the NT government over inaction on crime. We're here to try and get compensation to rebuild our own town. And sadly, we're going to have to rebuild it off our own back. Garth Thompson rejected accusations of racist motives made by some inside and outside the meeting. There is absolutely nothing racial-based about what we are trying to do tonight. Our town thrives on the Aboriginal culture. He's been buoyed by the response to his request for business people, residents and sporting organisations to join the legal action. We need to be able to get a group of us together to do that positively, to do the something ourselves positively. There is nothing racial about any of our approach and there's nothing about our approach to try and instigate any violence or deprive anyone of their opportunity to speak. And I had eight under elder women traditional owners come and and put their names on the list. Are you going to proceed with your plan for the class action then as well? Yes. The last census had nearly 12,000 rate-paying addresses in Alice Springs. I put together a figure of 15,000 points of compensation at $100,000 per point. That's where I came to the $1.5 billion. 
The head of Alice Springs Arundhati traditional owner group Lara Tipa, Graham Smith, says he shares Mr Thompson's view about anti-government inaction. I absolutely share that cohort of people's anger. We are business owners as well, Lara Tipa. We own three supermarkets. We have shares in Yipperinia Shopping Centre. So we also share the concerns of being broken into, your insurance declining, repairs to the point where we get it. I'm not a fan of suing the anti-government. Rather than suing the government, why can't we put together a package of a similar amount and use that money to invest in infrastructure? There's been some accusations that one of the undercurrents or causes of problems in Alice Springs is racism in the town. What is your view of that? To me, racism should not even be raised. Don't even give it airtime. It is not an issue from where I sit. Because I, mean, I don't think Alice Springs is a racist town. It's, it's an issue of health and alcohol. Mr Smith thinks the priority should be funding fun youth activities and addressing underinvestment in bush communities, driving crime into Alice Springs. Since the Commonwealth took over leasing of our communities and promised them townships, the investment's not followed. Alice Springs town councillor and Al Yawada traditional owner Michael Little doesn't think another major cash injection is the answer because many organisations are already being funded to help troubled young people and families. The whole industry of Aboriginal issues is, is very, very financed at the minute. And money's been dropped, but how that money's been spent is, is the issue here. No one knows what's doing what, who's doing what. The country Liberals' opposition is accusing the NT government of having lost control of Alice Springs and it's calling for an early general election. NT government minister Paul Kirby is rejecting that. The police minister and territory families minister and the chief minister have been down there regularly and they'll continue to go down to make sure that they get Alice on track. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, isn't committing anything extra, saying his government is already trying to close the gap. One of the clear priorities needs to be providing people with education because education leads to employment. Lura Tipperhead Graham Smith is among those still hoping for more. We've got no choice. We have to work with the government on this. They're the ones that pull the purse strings. They're the ones that sets the rules. We have to have dialogue with both governments if we're going to get ourselves out of this, you know, getting angry and just throwing up comments. But where's the strategy of actually getting an outcome? That's Lyra Tipper head Graham Smith talking to Jane Barden. Well, there's been notable movement this week on the debate over an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Proponents of enshrining the advisory body in the Constitution have cautiously welcomed Opposition Leader Peter Dutton's decision to dial in to a meeting of the Albanese government's referendum working group via video link on Thursday. At the same time, the No Camp has advanced its campaign with a new committee made up of several high-profile opponents of the referendum proposal. Among them is former Nationals leader and Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. He joined me earlier. John Anderson, thanks for your time. The federal Nationals have already made clear they oppose enshrining the voice in the Constitution. Are you just towing that line with your opposition or have you come to your own conclusions on this? No, this has been a really long journey for me. Uh, you know, I sat in classrooms with Aboriginal children when I was at primary school. My family have been enmeshed with Aboriginal communities, including Warren Mundine, since the 1820s. I've long thought it was a reasonable request for the Aboriginal people to ask for some proper recognition and was part of a committee looking at a possible roadmap 
seven or eight years ago. And I still believe there are ways to recognise that would be constructive and useful and helpful, but not this one, not enshrining a voice in the Constitution. Right. So why do you think a voice could actually divide Australia rather than help improve the lives of Indigenous people by giving them a say in policies that directly affect them? Well, all of us have the opportunity to have a say. That's called democracy. This proposes, in effect, that the rule book that says that one vote is one value, we all get one bite at the cherry, from the Prime Minister down to the most humble 18-year-old just getting the vote for the first time, but only one, effectively enshrining any particular group uh, in the Constitution in a way that either elevates their position or denigrates it, places them above or below the the ball, and... Uh, the, the law, and of course, effectively means uh, that um, one vote, one value is weakened. And but, but I it doesn't think, place them above the law. The voice wouldn't place them above the law in any way, would it? Well, in a sense, constitutionally, that's the rule book by which we play. Yes, it would give them an elevated status. That's what it would do. They would have rights that other Australians did not have. And the reason that I don't think that's desirable is that I think democracy depends upon us having a deep philosophical recognition that we are all of equal worth and merit as citizens, every single one of us. But I don't believe it is right or appropriate to weaken democracy by stating in your constitution that one racial group should have a particular status. Hasn't and neither that horse does. already bolted, though, because the 1967 referendum gave government the power to make special laws for Indigenous Australians? And I think that it would be better if we removed all vestiges of those sorts of measurements. And remember that we now know, and we've been reminded powerfully, that we are signatories to an international convention aimed at ending all forms of racial discrimination, which says that any such measure should be temporary at best, at most. It should only be temporary till the problem solved. The idea of the voice is that you would enshrine it in the Constitution forever unless another referendum removed it. In principle, I think that will become a running sore of resentment amongst other Australians, particularly in the Aboriginal community or in the communities which are, um, you know, mixed, if you like, of the sort that I represented a lot of. There would be a real resentment there. Why would, it, why would it breed resentment? Well, I think Australians, may, you know, fairness has always been a, a sort of... A, uh, you know, thing in Australia, the Americans talk freedom. We talk fairness. We talk mateship. And I just really believe, and I've had Aboriginal people say this, I mean, with four of our six committee members are saying this, we don't want special recognition. We may have particular needs that need to be met, and yes, our voice should be heard, but of course, so often the voice has been quite clear, but it's been ignored. The very people who are now, most behind this voice are the people who have been most reluctant to hear the message from Aboriginal leaders on the ground about what they want to do. One of the stronger arguments I've heard for the voice is that an Indigenous advisory body would likely provide consistent advice to governments, plural, so we don't have this continually changing approach to Indigenous policies when new governments come in and the like. I wonder about your thoughts on, on that point of view, particularly at a time when a lot of people are blaming the lifting of the intervention era grog bans in Alice Springs for the problems happening there now? The sound advice from the community leaders was ignored. That's why it happened. 
you don't need a voice to know that that, that, that those arrangements should have been properly maintained. The people who had the living experience of it, including my fellow committee member, uh, Jacinta Price, were clearly warning of the dangers of discontinuity here. Clearly. I am in that category of people who thinks it's right and wise to look for a way to recognise. We're not against as a committee. We just say there's a better way to do it. John Anderson, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's former Deputy Prime Minister and member of the No Case Committee, John Anderson. This is PM with me, David Lipson, and you can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. After its worst ranking ever last year, Australia has improved its position on a global corruption index to finish as the 13th least corrupt country in the world. Transparency International's latest Corruption Perceptions Index also saw New Zealand lose top spot to Denmark. As Samantha Donovan reports, the success of Australia's new National Anti-Corruption Commission will be crucial if we are to improve our ranking any further. Last year wasn't a good one for Australia when it came to Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index. Once a consistent performer in the top 10, we dropped to 18th position based on surveys conducted by bodies including the World Bank, the Economist Intelligence Unit and the World Justice Project. But this year, Australia is ranked 13th with a score of 75 points out of 100. Clancy Moore is the CEO of Transparency International Australia. Yeah, look, after 10 years of democratic backsliding, Australia's ranking's gone up two points off the back of the historic National Anti-Corruption Commission that passed last year. The legislation has passed, but the National Anti-Corruption Commission, the NAC, isn't up and running yet. Is it too early to be rising on this index? Yeah, look, it'll take time for the National Anti-Corruption Commission to do its job properly, which is to detect, prevent and investigate corruption. We think that the Commission is independent, well-resourced and in time will help Australia's score increase. But it's only one piece of the puzzle. We really need the Albanese government to show the same level of ambition for reforms around political donations, unfair lobbying and stronger protections for people that blow the whistle on corruption as well. The Federal Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus has welcomed Australia's rise on the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. I think it's unthinkable to most Australians that uh, we could have slipped in this global corruption perceptions index to 18th place, the worst result of any OECD country, uh, the worst result we've ever had. And uh, we're determined to restore Australia's reputation as being an open, transparent and not corrupt nation. Are you still hoping that the National Anti-Corruption Commission will be up and running by mid-year? Absolutely. Uh, we've par- as we said we would at the election, the hard work of finding the people to fill the senior positions, that's the commissioner, the deputy commissioner positions, the CEO and the inspector of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, they're all statutory positions and all of them have to go before the um, parliamentary committee, which will be established when the parliament uh, sits next week in the, in the first few weeks of sittings and we'll be advertising for staff, we have to find premises, all of the normal things that you have to do when you establish a, common, a new Commonwealth agency. 
Adam Greycar is a professor of public policy at the University of Adelaide. He says Australia's improved ranking on the Corruption Perceptions Index is good news, but he believes the establishment of the National Anti-Corruption Commission won't solve all of Australia's integrity issues. Well, it'll be an evolving uh, activity. The important thing, anti-corruption commissions come in many forms. You know, some are vicious guard dogs, some are like uh, paper tigers, some are like general watchdogs. And uh, my guess is it'll be much more of a watchdog with an inve- with investigative powers. That's Professor Adam Greycar from the University of Adelaide. Samantha Donovan, our reporter there. Well, a depressingly familiar story is continuing to unfold in Israel following the bloodiest violence in years. An Israeli raid on the West Bank, which killed 10 Palestinians last week, was followed by an attack outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem, where a Palestinian gunman killed seven. Now the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is in Israel, urging both sides to ease tensions and pressing again for the ever-elusive two-state solution in the quest for peace. We continue to believe that the best way to achieve it is through preserving and then realising the vision of two states. As I said to the Prime Minister, anything that moves us away from that vision is, in our judgment, detrimental to Israel's long-term security and its long-term identity as a Jewish and democratic state. That's why we're urging uh, all sides uh, now to take urgent steps to restore calm, to de-escalate. That's Anthony Blinken there. In the middle of all this, there's been a clandestine drone strike on Iran, with reports Israel was behind it and claims it could impact on the war in Ukraine. To help unpack what's going on, I was joined earlier by John Blacksland, a professor of international security and intelligence studies at ANU. John Blacksland, thanks for your time. Can we say with certainty now that the drone strikes on Iran came from Israel? Look, we're not in a position to verify that, but the circumstantial evidence would point strongly to Israel as the instigator of that attack, for sure. It comes at a time of high tensions in Israel, deadly synagogue attacks coming after deadly Israeli military raids in Palestinian territories. Does this look to you like retribution for the Palestinian attacks? So there's a fairly well-recognised connection between Iran and uh, the Palestinian militant groups, uh, particularly Hamas and uh, what's happening in Gaza, but not just in Gaza. So there's an understandable and credible rationale for Israel to want to strike at Iran There is a bigger geopolitical picture here because Iran has been, we understand, supplying missiles and drones to Russia to help it strike Ukraine. Could these strikes actually damage Iran's ability to help Russia in the future? So there is a possibility that... Israel's, if it is Israel, uh, that attacks on Iran's facilities may damage um, the ability of Iran to support Russia. And that is probably something that is weighed up very carefully in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv because the relationship with Russia is still very important to Israel. 
and that's because Syria matters and Russia has a significant uh, stake, footprint and contributing role to the security situation in Syria. And Russia is the facilitator to a certain extent of Iranian engagement in and through Syria to Lebanon. So Israel's security is very much tied up with managing the relationship with Russia because of Russia's ability to inflict so much pain through, simply through facilitation of Iranian support to Lebanon and Iranian action in and through Syria directly targeting Israel. And is that why Israel hasn't responded to calls to provide direct military support to Ukraine? Indeed, Israel's in a conundrum. I think deep down, Israelis, by and large, would be very supportive of Ukraine, but they have to be pragmatic about the consequences of being too overt in their support for Ukraine. Israel has provided humanitarian and uh, some intelligence support that's broadly acknowledged as what's transpired already. But for Israel to go beyond that would be probably to incur the wrath of Russia. How would Ukraine, the US and, and other partners view Israel's attacks on Iran in the frame of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and is it too much of a leap to assume or, or, or to predict that the matters are, are connected in some way? So it's hard to formally and explicitly connect the dots, but there is a compelling rationale for this to be the act of Israel and for Ukraine and the United States and NATO countries to be quietly cheering on Israel for its acts in Iran. Uh, but Israel is not going to ever explicitly you know, acknowledge this. Uh, it's not in its interests to do so. You know, The Iranians have made it clear that uh, they see uh, Israel as a, a country that does not deserve to exist. So for the Israelis, Iran is an existential threat and that therefore warrants them taking very, very careful uh, but severe precautions against Iran. And that means balancing up very, very carefully how they uh, act in a way that might irritate Russia. John Blaxland, great to talk to you. Thank you. Good to be with you. That's Professor John Blaxland from Australian National University. Should Australia legalise marijuana? It's a decades-old debate, but the Greens are trying to breathe, or perhaps exhale, new life into it by pointing to the potential tax revenue on offer, as seen in Canada and several US states in recent years. Here, the Greens have released costings from the Parliamentary Budget Office showing legalising cannabis could generate upwards of $28 billion over 10 years. But are there other costs? Nick Grimm reports. At an age when most people complain of a few aches and pains, Deb Lynch has plenty to talk about. Um, I have um, a condition called diffuse scleroderma. It's a progressive autoimmune disease. I also have significant vascular disease, for which I've already lost one leg. The 62-year-old Queenslander relies on cannabis for her chronic pain after finding more traditional opioid painkillers weren't up to the job. And from the very first dose, it made a significant difference to my symptomology and my pain levels. Many Australians in her position say medicinal cannabis has been a life changer, but not in her case. I can't say that medicinal cannabis has helped me at all because I've never been able to access 
my medicinal cannabis because I can't afford it. My prescription is $1,920 per month. My pension is less than that. So I can't use it to get all of my products legally because I can't afford it. So how do you get them? Um, Illicitly. (laughs) And that's something this pensioner says has got her in some scrapes with the authorities. And as president of the Medical Cannabis Users Association of Australia, she's lobbied for the plant to be made more freely and lawfully available. You come in and it's professional, it's welcoming, and we want you to have a good high. In some jurisdictions where marijuana is legal, such as the US state of Colorado, it's become a multi-billion dollar industry and lure for tourists with advertising like this. I can't count the number of people who've come in here and just been so excited that they never thought they would see this day where they could walk into a store and buy marijuana. (laughs) I never thought I would see the day. (laughs) That's a vision some have for Australia too, including the Greens Party. But our model would allow um, adults in a household to grow up to six cannabis plants themselves without being taxed, without having to get a licence. Green Senator David Shoebridge has obtained modelling from the Federal Parliamentary Budget Office showing that legalisation of cannabis would generate $28 billion in government revenue over a decade. And he argues the benefits to the economic bottom line wouldn't stop there. By legalising cannabis, you stop about 70,000 people a year getting caught in the criminal justice system, getting a criminal record simply because they've been caught with possession of cannabis. But some medical experts are yet to be convinced of the overall health benefits of cannabis, including members of the Australian New Zealand College of Anaesthetists, which supports its use only within medical trials. And there may be other medical uses where it proves to be effective, but you know, definitely in pain management, it's not looking great. Associate Professor Michael Vag is Director of Professional Affairs for the college's Faculty of Pain Medicine, which represents pain specialists. And he believes legalisation could bring with it a range of other costs to society. The debate that has to take place is that we need to quantify what the possible harms are in terms of the known risks, which is, you know, mental health and if people smoke it or inhale it, the damage to lungs and so forth. I think those are the debates that need to take place, but I think it needs to be a very clear-eyed, evidence-based debate. That's Associate Professor Michael Vag, Nick Grimm with that report. And that's PM for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back at the same same time tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Anthony Albanese wanted bipartisan support for the voice to parliament. Instead, he's being met with increasing political divisions. Today, Radio National Breakfast host Patricia Carvelis on whether the government can convince Australians to vote yes without support across the parliament. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.